Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your good and your lovely and your gracious gifts. Lord, thank you um, for a moment in the week that we just stop and pause and remember. Um, for sacred time to just sit before you. Lord, I pray this morning that you would open our ears to what you would have to say. Lord, for me, I pray that as I speak, that you would speak through me, that it wouldn't be my words, but your words. God, thank you. Thank you for all your good and lovely and gracious gifts you give us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. In Graham Greene's book, A Burnt Out Case, it opens with this picture of a young man arriving in Africa at the end of the line, at the end of the river. And this young man's a mystery to the community. And as he arrives, he arrives at a leprosary or a leper's colony run by the church where they take care of the lepers there. And over time, he starts to integrate himself into the community. Until one day, he's sitting at a chapel service. But he's sitting at the very back with the doctor who doesn't believe. And him and the doctor start to talk with one another about what's going on. And as he starts to talk, he starts to share his story. And you come to find out that this young man isn't just any young man that's run to the end of the line. But he's actually a famous architect, someone who's built beautiful churches, but has experienced a crisis of vocation and work, who's exhausted and all he knows how to do, this young man named Query has run to the end of the line as far as he can away from his problems. He tells the doctor this story through tears. The doctor listens and then he points at a man and he says, you see that man over there? And this man's disfigured and the leprosy has taken over his entire body. And Query says, yes, I see him. He says, that man is a burnt out case. He goes on to explain that a burnt out case is when there's no longer anything left to cut off in a leper's colony. When you have nothing left to lose, that you're so burned out that there's nothing left of you. And then the doctor turns his finger from the man in the distance and points at Query and he says, you are a burned out case. As the story goes on, you come to find out that the characters in the story are all burned out cases. All of them are experiencing crisis of vocation or faith in some way, shape, or form. And I'll never forget where I was when I read this story. I was on vacation with my family in San Diego, and I was sitting on the back porch late one night. Everyone else had gone to bed, and I read those words, you are a burnt-out case, and I felt like the doctor was pointing at me because I'd been running. I, was, I had just started seminary. My daughter was just over a year old, and we had our second one on the way. I was working full-time at the church, I was, uh, had been a pastor for four years at that point, working with college and high school students, and I remember thinking to myself, I've been telling college students how they should deal with being burned out, and here I am at my wit's end at one in the morning, sitting on the back porch, not knowing what to do with myself, because I had filled my life to overflowing. And I'd found myself, in the, like the characters in the story, having this inappropriate relationship with vocation and work. And I hadn't rested well. 
and I'd reduced rest to just sleep and my work to this level of productivity. And I would venture a guess that many of you in here have felt that before as well. That most of us struggle with our relationship with work and vocation. From engineer to teacher to stay-at-home mom to everything else, we all struggle to balance work and rest. And it's an age-old question that's just ramped up in recent years. Because we've become people that are crazy busy, plugged in, and constantly on call. We can be reached at the press of a button. We know the news and the realities of our world in the blink of an eye. And all of this has left us burned out and tired. And this is certainly ramped up in the last two years with the pandemic. Uh, CNBC reported earlier uh, in the fall, I guess actually last fall, that after the first year of the pandemic, one in four people were considering leaving their jobs because of being burned out. Uh, for my vocation, it was something like seven out of ten pastors were considering leaving their profession. And it's not just a problem with work, though. It's not just because we struggle with work that we feel this, but it's also because we struggle with rest. Because rest has just become this dream reality, one that we watch others that professionally rest, living vicariously through their vacations and time off. As we're scrolling through Instagram, we often wonder, maybe one day I can be like them. But what if we're missing something to our idea of work and rest? Because, see, the ideas of work and rest are actually integral to how God describes who we are in Scripture. The idea of work is mandated from the very beginning of the story of God. The word Sabbath, this formal day of rest, is mentioned over 170 times in Scripture. And the rhythms of work and rest are a part of our very nature. And for us to be properly human, we have to properly order them. Because the way we order our time is critical to how we follow God. And that matters for us because we're arriving at a new season. As we move into this new season for our church, as we move into a new building, starting to dream and think about what we can do in the neighborhood and what God might be doing as he goes before us, it's important for us to understand that work and rest are far more than just merely producing or getting enough sleep. We have to ask ourselves some questions about the use of our time and what that means for us as we work and rest. So this morning, we just want to ask a few questions. What does proper work look like? What should proper rest look like? How should they be ordered in the world? And what does it mean for God to actually be over time itself? This, uh, over the last, week, we've been, uh, last few weeks, we've been in a series called No Things Sacred. And what we're talking about is how we often take things that we think should be sacred but aren't sacred. We treat the things, we treat that which isn't sacred as though it were, and that which is as though it wasn't. And because of that tendency, we're taking time to talk about God and time and people. And key to that is how God, how God relates to time. And for us to understand the concepts of work and rest, we have to see how God, from the very beginning, orders these two things. 
And so this morning, we're going to take a look at Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Uh, this interesting interlude between creation accounts. This quiet moment in the story of God shows God's treatment of work and rest and gives a commentary on God's creative and powerful action. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 2, 1 through 3, or if you have an app, I venture a guess it's on page 1 or 2, maybe. So uh, if you want to turn there, if you want to follow along. But first we have to take a look at what's going on around the text. As we come to the text this morning, we find ourselves in this really interesting interlude between chapters, because both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 give stories of creation that differ slightly from each other. But what's probably going on here is not that there are two conflicting stories of creation, but two tellings of the creation account. Telling one gives the harmonic story of creation, giving the beautiful movement and structure of the world that God creates. While telling two gives the nitty-gritty picture of a workman, God who is not absent from his creation, but rather intimately works in his creation. Think of it this way. It's sort of like smoking meat. Stick with me. You can go online right now and look up how to smoke wheat, and it'll give you a list of equipment and the things you need and the different ingredients and the artisanal uh, butcher shop to go get it from, although let's be honest, you're probably going to go get it from Costco anyway, and it'll teach you how to smoke excellent meat. Or you can go talk to Roger or Jared about smoking meat, and they'll give you a slightly uncomfortable, intimate look at how they smoke wheat, uh, meat and the like, lover-like language they use around it to describe the flavors as they emerge and the, the different things. And both are accurate and lovely ways to describe smoking meat. But they differ in emphasis, right? And in the same way, the author is giving two different accounts of creation with two different emphasis. But right in the middle, there's this moment of pause and interlude, causing the reader to pause and reflect. This is what it says in 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. As this interlude invites us to pause and reflect on the nature and work of God, it wants us to understand something about God's nature. To understand the relationship between the, the proper relationship between work and rest and how God himself is working and resting. It starts by saying, Thus the heaven and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Genesis 2 begins in the same stillness and silence that occurs in Genesis 1. It harkens us back to the story and the order of Genesis 1, reminding, of God's, reminding us of God's creative work. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. In the beginning, God creates, or barach is the word that's used there. It's a word uniquely used to describe the creative work of God. Only God barachs. Only God creates in that way. 
And while we can debate how you're supposed to interpret Genesis 1 or what's going on here or how many days the world was created in, what we can see certainly is that God creates with order. Over the first three days, God creates this beautiful structure to the cosmos. On day one, he creates night and day. On day two, he creates the heavens and the sky above, the heavens and the waters below. He, on day three, he divides the lands and the water, and he get, puts, fills them with vegetation. But then the next three days, he takes that structure and he fills it with abundance. On day four, the night and the day are filled with an abundance of lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day five, the water and the skies are filled with fish and birds teeming with life. And on day six, God fills the land with creatures, finishing with mankind who's made in the very image of God. See, God creates a structure and then fills it with abundance. And in his creation of humanity, he invites them to do the same, being fruitful and multiplying and having dominion over the earth. Because it says in Genesis 1, 27 through 28, that God creates man in his image, that God creates humanity in its image. Now, what that doesn't mean is that God is some six foot four, awkward bearded dude standing on stage talking at you. But it means that we're created to image God. It's actually an invitation to image God, which is totally different than the other gods of the time. Because the other gods would have created a something that was static, an idol or a shrine, somewhere to be worshipped at, something that people could see the image of them in. But rather, God makes an active image, one that actually bears who he is to the world. The image-bearing nature is not done just by how we look, but rather by how we use our hands. Humanity is given a task to be fruitful and multiply. And this isn't just a command to have lots of kids, to fill up some 8 or 15 passenger van. But the idea is actually to create the same way God does, to make structure and fill it with abundance. We are to be creators like the creator of the cosmos, working in the world around them, having a dignity to who we are and what we do. And again, this is totally different than the other gods of the time. There's other creation myths arising at the same time as this story is being written down. And one of them is the Enuma Elish. And in the Enuma Elish, the, the Babylonian creation myth, one of the more popular ones, there's a battle that rages between the gods. And as this battle rages, the world is created. The world's created out of this chaotic battle, not out of structure or order. And at the end of this chaotic battle, Marduk and his compatriots win. And after they win, after the, and they see the result of their work, this battle they've waged, they see this world underneath them and they say, we don't want to take care of that. That seems beneath us. Let us create these slave-like insect things we'll call humans. And they can tend the earth for us. Because of that... Work is something that's beneath the gods. And if you cry out to the gods, maybe they'll hear you. But your finite life is pretty much meaningless at this point. 
But instead, God creates mankind. Yahweh creates mankind in his image. Commanding that they image him in creating structures so the abundance can flourish. And we see this all around us where we take beats and the noises around us and we order them and we make beautiful music. Or we take flour and yeast and sugar and all the other breadly things and we make bread. Or we take rhythm and all of the awkward movements. Or some people, I guess, take rhythm and all of the awkward movements and put them together and we dance. See, here humanity becomes an active, not a static image of God that represents him in how we live, work, and rest. And as the story closes, the entirety of creation, all the host of them is found to be created and completed by God at the end of Genesis 1. He's finished his work. And then there's a question that arises. How is one to understand the implication of his work for those created in his image? What does it mean when God finishes for us that are commanded to image him in our work? Well, God, in this interlude, establishes a precedent of what it means for us to work and rest. Because God works. It starts by acknowledging the completed work of God. That God's created this entire magnificent world in an effortless manner. God's creative work is not different from other deities. Again, other deities are creating. But what's different is how he approaches the work. That it's normalized. And even the word used here in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, is normal. The word work occurs three times in verses 2 through 3. And that word there in Hebrew is melakah, which is the ordinary word used for work that's used throughout Scripture. Whenever you see the word work in Scripture, when someone's working, that's the word. And it's interesting because God is ordinary, or working in an ordinary way. While the rest of the creation account uses unique words for God's creative ability, here it uses the ordinary human term because it's probably inviting us into the story to be fruitful and multiply. God's creative acts are unique in the life that they bring, but work itself has dignity, and that dignity is given to all work that we do. See, God's not reduced work to that of a lowly slave. Mankind's not created as an afterthought, predestined to serve the gods for eternity, but rather God affirms the ordinariness of work itself in time. Changing a diaper or changing an algorithm or changing words on a page are all affirmed in God's goodness. And even when it doesn't feel this way, work is viewed as good. God defines work as good. But it doesn't mean that God intends for man just to simply work themselves to the bone, but rather God designed mankind to rest as well because God himself rests. See, God rests after his creation. Here God does something ordinary to the other gods as well. Other gods rest also. But there's there's two unique things about how God rests here. The first is that God doesn't rest out of exhaustion. Other creation accounts, after gods create, after they do something, they retreat to their temple. They retreat to their place or to their room to rest because they're exhausted from the work they've done. 
But at no point here is God described as tired. Rather, the idea is that God actually abstains from work. He chooses not to work. And he does it so he can rest with his creation, not away from his creation, not retreating to a temple far away. But here, God rests amongst his creation, not creating a holy place, a holy temple that he can escape from his people, but rather resting and taking in the grandeur of his created world and inviting his creation to do the same. It's a moment of delight when he rests from work, embracing the good world around him. It reminds me of Christmas lights. Every year, my Christmas light rhythm goes about the same way, is that uh, I run on New Mexico time, so about halfway through December, I decide it's time to put up Christmas lights. And so I get up usually late in the afternoon because I, I think I'm cocky and I, every year I'm like, I can do this really quick and it never goes the way that I want it to. And so I get out the Christmas lights and I plug them in and inevitably like one of the bulbs is broken and so I have to figure out how to fix it or I have to get new lights, uh, which has been the case the last two years. And then by that time I go to the store and get the Christmas lights and it's usually like dusk is coming and I'm like, oh, I got to get these lights up. And so I throw them up really quick. Um, and I live in a two-story house, and so I'm standing on a ladder, and I'm standing on, like, the top step that says, don't stand on it, and my neighbor Terry comes over, and he says, do you need a bigger ladder? And I'm like, no, Terry, go away, leave me alone, but I say it a little nicer because I'm a pastor, Um, and I'm usually trying to, like, put the lights up, and my wife thinks I'm going to die, and usually it's chaos and unfurls in front of us. I usually have to take the lights back down because my first go doesn't look that good, and it would be ridiculous if I finally got the lights the way we want them to look. And I find they finally look good and beautiful, and then I go inside and never look at them again. No, the first thing I do is I get my family and my kids, and we come outside, and we look at our Christmas lights. And then we get in the car, and we go drive around and look at the other Christmas lights. Because after the hard and harrowing work of hanging lights, there's something delightful about just sitting back and enjoying the magic they bring. And in the same way, God does that with his creation. He sits back and he delights in his world. He delights in spending time in it. He delights in watching his creation as it works around him. And after all of the work of God and his creative acts, there's this rhythm that he's established of work and rest And if this is the case for God and we're to image God, then what does that mean for us? Well, I think there's three things that the text invites us to consider about work and rest and time. The first is this, and it's going to seem silly, but stick with me, is that we're created in the image of God. It says it over and over again that we are created in the image of God. That each human that you see bears the unique image and value of of God. And we often know this intellectually, but it's not the way that we act about, even in our thought life. We place value upon others, both implicitly and explicitly. We attempt to belittle others and elevate ourselves. We embrace stereotypes or racism. Look at our last political cycle, and you can see it all over the map. And even when our laws define something as fair or right, we lose sight of the fact that all people are created in the image of God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people, 
You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nation, cultures, arts, civilizations, these, these things are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it's immortals who we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. See, God's image is not unique just to you or me, but it's for all people. And over the summer, we studied Ephesians together. We saw that God invites all people to him. And this theology goes beyond just simple inclusion, but an affirmation of the image of God in people. See, no matter the background of the person, they're made in the image of God. It's an inherent affirmation of human dignity. And this often clashes with our view of work and rest because it opposes our view of striving. Because if everyone's made in the image of God, then it means that we are not more valuable or better than our neighbor. We, cannot, we can rest because we're not striving to get ahead. We're no longer defined by what we do or do not produce. Rather, we're each created to bear the image of God to the world. And if all of us bear the image of God, then it totally reframes the way that we think about our work and the work around us. And if this is the case, then the question comes up, how then do we work? What does it mean for us to express our image to the world? Because we are designed by God to work, because work is designed by God. As image bearers, a way that we can reflect God's nature to the world is actually in our working Part of bearing the image of God is to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over the earth. And this doesn't mean abusing the earth or others, but rather creating structure where, those, where abundance can flourish. But the problem is that our idea of work is often unhealthy and narrow. We define work as what we do for pay. We make idols of our job or job titles, expressing it in competition. Think about the way that we start conversations. What do you do for work? Our idols of work are readily ap uh, apparent in the results. One doesn't have to look much farther than the news to see where work gets us. 2017, there was a story about a woman in Japan who died after working 159 hours in one week, literally working herself to death. Studies by the Bureau of Labor have shown that the majority of Americans are overworked, and actually many are suggesting a four-day work week as a remedy, although they've seen that when they've done that, the excessive hours even still remain the same. Beyond this, many of, for many of us, our identity is caught up in our work and can be a great sense of anxiety. Uh, researcher Brad Bushman at Ohio State found out that the boost of self-esteem that comes from our work is the most potent feeling of pleasure. And that feeling of pleasure is often related to how much better that we conceive we are than the person next to us at our job. And this isn't just a problem that's, uh, a problem that's absent from the Christian community. We rate vocational significance in our head, often even drawing sacred secular lines. When I was growing up, I used to like have this, I would never say this out loud. Now I can say it out loud because it seems ridiculous, but I had like this hierarchy of jobs in my head. It was like doctor and then pastor and then missionary and then like missionary pastor. And then like the top thing was like missionary doctor pastor. 
like you kept adding titles, and that was like the best thing you could be, like God shined brightest on you if that's what you were. And it's ridiculous, right? Because it seems that God just says all work is good. Work was never meant to be the way of prominence, the toil that it is, or the source of our identities. Work is not just simply a way to provide, but our work also inherently has dignity and purpose. And it's not bad to want to do things excellently, but it was always meant to be done in a way that reflects the excellency of our Creator. It's best seen in how children approach work. An article by The Atlantic examined the way that the children work in response to being paid for their chores. This is what it says. It says, After 18 months on earth, Lancy, the researcher, explained to me children almost universally become eager to help their parents. And in many cultures, they're brought into the process of doing housework. They may be incompetent little things, but they can learn quickly by watching. Praise is rare, Lancy says, as the principal reward is being welcomed and included in the flow of family activity. I've seen this recently, uh, again, with my two-and-a-half-year-old son. Uh, Jonas is my son. Um, He will introduce himself by saying, I, Jonas, which reminds me of Tarzan. Um, But he he goes around the house recently, especially after dinner, and he gets really excited about helping clean up the dishes. And he'll run over to you, and he goes, I help. And then he'll, like, grab the dish, and we kind of like, oh, and, like, we have to, like, kind of, like, grab it from him because we don't want him to break the dishes. But we try to, he wants to help in some way. He sees what he's doing as good. Or when he cleans up, he has a joy to cleaning up and helping. Because work is not just something that we do in order to get by, but it actually bears God's image to the world. We create structures so the world can flourish. An engineer builds computer systems and structures so systems can operate. A parent creates an ordered home so kids can grow in knowledge and stature. And in school, students write in the structure of papers so that ideas may abound. Work is not a cast-off, but rather the things that we do with our proverbial and actual hands matter. What we do with our time matters. The problem is, is that work is not that for most of us. We strive and find ourselves exhausted living in a reality where we're slaves to the idols of work. And while work is a way of expressing the image of God, it can get twisted in some, into something that it is done for our own gain. And this is where we need the good news of the second way that we image God, in resting. Because the second thing that mankind's invited to do by God is to rest. God invites us into Sabbath rest with Him. This is opposed to the disordered way that we define rest in our own lives. A Google search on resting or resting well will reveal that most of us uh, just think of rest as sleeping more. Getting a little more time to ourselves. And while sleep's not a bad thing, as someone with two kids under four, I understand that sleep is a very good thing. But rest is far more than sleep. The Jews practice this idea of Sabbath, the holy day to rest and remember what God has done, the practice that was given to them in Exodus. It's interesting because God doesn't create a holy place, but a holy time. God's not found in a temple, but in time itself. Or as Abraham Herschel, uh, Rabbi Abraham Herschel put it, the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. 
The Sabbath isn't limited to a day, but the good news of Jesus is that he invites us to rest in him on a day-by-day basis. In Matthew 11, Jesus puts it this way, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Jesus, we have rest from our overly busy world and striving. We're invited to rest and embrace the good world around us. Not resting due to exhaustion, but to abstain from work. To embrace and enjoy God's work. Because rest is an embrace of the good world around us. It's an embrace of the good news of Jesus over all things. As he's come to rescue us from a world of toil filled with empty work. And as he transforms our world around us. It's embracing God's nature and creation. We don't always understand, again, the idea of delighting in the world around us. But again, it's where kids are helpful. If you've ever gone on a hike with a kid, you understand very quickly the idea of wonder because they want to stop about every 20 seconds to look at something that's the coolest thing they've ever seen. Whether it's a flower or a stick or a rock, whatever it is, there's delight We can learn from kids in this way because resting and delighting in the world around us, abstaining from work so we can embrace God's work is also a part of reflecting God's image. We're invited to rest in the life-giving work of Jesus moment by moment to be present in God's temple of time. Embracing God, not in a holy place, but in holy time. And if we're created in God's image to both work and rest, what does this mean for us as we step into this new season? If we're invited into the, to rest in the life-giving work of Jesus, then how will we do so in this new season? Well, in the beginning of this new season, as we head towards the new building, as we look at all the dates that are on the screen and think about what's coming, we're setting all types of goals and practices that we want to accomplish as a church. We want to impact our neighborhoods, grow as a church in both depth and breadth, and follow Jesus in community on mission in our city. And while these are good desires and things that we want, maybe we should start by re-examining the ways that we use our time, the ways that we work and rest. How do you define work? Do you simply limit it to what you do for pay or do you expand it to the world around you? Maybe it's time to work from an identity rooted in the nature of God rather than an identity rooted in self. How do you define rest? Is it only about catching up on sleep or about striving? Is it about surviving? Maybe it's time to actually delight in God's world around you. For many of us, the rhythms of work and rest are hard because we live in a world that feels like it's gone mad and things that are constantly vying for our attention. Because many of us are also burnt out cases not sure how we're to operate with these practices. We understand the idea of hard work, but we don't know how to balance it with rest, especially in the West. For us, it starts by examining our rhythms and definitions, looking at how we have ordered our worlds, our work, and our rest. Maybe it's time to set aside Sabbath in your week or holy time, to put away your phone for an hour each day, 
or take a day where you unplug and enjoy the world around you or embrace the small moments and meet God in time, his holy cathedral. I confess I'm really bad at this. Although it was four years ago, I was sitting on that back porch and remembering I was a burnt out case. I had that reminder again this week. I was on vacation. I was sitting on the back porch again, just in silence, looking at the stars. And unprompted, those words echoed in my head again. You too are a burnt out case. And after this season, many of us are burnt out cases. But maybe it's time to just pause and and realize the ways that work and rest go hand in hand and reconsider the rhythms that we've put in our life. Because if we don't work well, we won't rest well. And if we don't rest well, we won't work well. And I confess, I leave this a little bit open-ended. Normally, I'd have like, this is the concrete thing we should do. But I leave it a little open-ended because I know we each find ourselves in different places this morning. Maybe we're in a place where we use our time well, meeting God in the temple of time. Or maybe we've lost that relationship or rhythm during this season of COVID, ignoring rest for the idol of productivity. Or maybe we've never had it to begin with. Because we all come with preconceived notions of work and rest. But maybe it's time for us to recognize our unbalanced hearts and habits and remember these words. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you for your good and your lovely and your gracious gifts. Lord, for the ways that you meet us in time, for the ways that you've invited to image you in the world in both how we work and how we rest. Lord, I pray that today, wherever we're at, whether we have unbalance or whether we're actually doing it well, that God, you would meet us in those places, that you would meet us in the temple of time, that you would meet us and remind us of who you are and what you're doing. Thank you, God. Thank you for all, your, all the good things you're doing in our world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.